Eternity past and the risk of God. We're going to be covering some very interesting topics tonight. And these things are going to make you think. We're going to stretch your brain tonight. You might have grown up learning some of these concepts, basic concepts. But as we get into this, I want you to really be thinking about some of the things we're going to be talking about tonight. Go home, study these things out, be a good Berean, and try to understand what the Holy Spirit is saying to you through this very interesting topic. Eternity past and the risk of God. Eternity past and the risk of God. You know, being a pastor, especially a pastor in California, I get a lot of questions. A lot of people come up to me and they want to know this about that or this about this. And you know, so as I'm sharing, I always tell people I'm a human being. I don't have all the answers there are in the world today, but I will do my best to share. I never forgot somebody asked me one time, they said this, who existed before God? Can you imagine a question like that? And it came from a young person. They said, who existed before God? And then I said, I really don't understand your question. And then they say to me, who made God? And I thought to myself, wow, I really don't understand your question. So I said that to them. I said, I don't understand your question. And they'd say it again, who made God? And I said to them, I don't understand your question, and here's the reason why. When you're asking the question, who made God, you're essentially implying that someone existed before God. And the reason why I don't understand that question is because God is a being, by definition, who is somebody who's always existed forever. So what you're actually asking is, who existed before a being who's always existed forever? I don't understand your question. And she said to me, neither do I anymore. <laughs> I remember somebody one time asked me, about the nature of God. And they said, can you please explain the Trinity to me? How does three equal one? Because I took basic arithmetic and three does not equal one. Three equals three. And they were trying to understand a little bit more about this triune picture you have about God in the scriptures. And so I was able to share a little bit, but there are some tough questions in life. But as you continue to follow God more and more, you will realize that your wisdom and knowledge of God will increase based upon your capacity to receive it. So the more you are in this special relationship with God, the more he begins to reveal aspects of his character that were not previously known by you. Questions are a big thing. Remember I talked about this two days ago? The word question, the etymological background, is basically a quest to find answers. That's actually what the word means. It comes from Latin. It means a quest to find answers. In fact, when you go look at the uh, Latin word education or the word for it, which is educate, it means to actually draw out, to draw out. When you go to the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs says this, says this, counsel is deep in the heart of a man, but a righteous man will draw it out. The way that Jesus would always answer questions was by another question. In fact, one time I did a study, there are over a hundred questions Jesus asked in the Gospels, each one different. One hundred questions. And so when he was trying to help people understand things, oftentimes he would lead them through a time of asking questions and helping them come to the realization. 
And this was a very interesting form of education. The greatest teacher God has ever given to us was able to share and portray to our world about who God really is. When you study the Gospels, you begin to realize some remarkable things that Jesus was actually revealing about the nature of God, who God really is. I shared a little bit about this yesterday, that in the Old Testament, the word Father applying to God just only appears a handful of times. But in the New Testament, it appears multiple times. Why? Because Jesus was trying to show that God is more than just a father. He is fatherly. And this was revolutionary for the Jews. They understood God was the father. They understood him, but he was like a, a stern kind of father. But Jesus began to reveal the paternal side of who God really was. And it was remarkable. People were being freed and wanting to learn more and more about who God was based upon this more beautiful and accurate picture. Jesus was the very best one, the Bible says, to reveal the truth about who God is. Understanding God is a very difficult thing. Can you say amen to that? I mean, we are talking, ladies and gentlemen, about an infinite being who has lived in eternity past. And to try to explain that in just a few minutes to people, oftentimes is very difficult. Amen? And especially when you're trying to explain it to a Hindu family where there's already language barriers, trying to explain abstract things about who God is. That's why when you have a relationship with Jesus, it begins to communicate more than just your words do. So even where your words fail, your actions and your life communicate such a beautiful picture of who God is. You know, Jesus began to elaborate more about the nature of God, things that were very foreign to the people he was talking to, and oftentimes very shocking and was met with a lot of unbelief and resistance. He began to share more about the triune nature of who God was. You see, the Jews understood there was the Father God, and they had some understanding about the Messiah, but they really weren't quite sure what his relation was to the Father. And Jesus began to share that the Messiah was none other than the Son of God. Now near the end of his ministry, Jesus began to elaborate more about the nature of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit was very present in the Old Testament, but he was not quite understood like the way Jesus was explaining. In fact, that verse that says this, I have many things to share with you, but you cannot bear them were specifically in regards to who the Holy Spirit was. The Holy Spirit was very active in Genesis chapter 1. Even Psalm 51, David talks about the Holy Spirit. But his relation to the Trinity or to the Godhead was quite unusual. And so Jesus began to unfold the nature of God as people had the capability to understand that. And it's oftentimes this understanding of God that has been misinterpreted by this world. The triune nature of who God is is very interesting and can be easily misinterpreted. How do we explain there are three in heaven, yet they are one? How do we even begin to explain that? What is so remarkable is God begins to share throughout the Holy Scriptures that the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what actually makes them one is a special thing we call love. Can you say amen to that? 
And that's such a beautiful thing when you begin to think about that because when we understand more and more about the nature of who God is, we begin to see more than just one entity. We begin to see a heavenly community, a divine family, what I call the very first small group. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each one has existed, pre-existed creation, and self, where each one were self-existent, equal in power. They refuse to take on that title, gods, because gods implies division. It implies different kinds of purposes and missions, and the world's concept of gods is really, really strange. They reject that concept. And so when you begin to understand the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they only, refuse, they only refer to themselves as God. Unified in mission, purpose, and desire. And that is to see humanity redeemed. You know, I listen to many Hindu philosophers. Many of these Hindu philosophers posit this idea then any kind of explanation about the infinite, eternal God is actually a reduction of who he is. They base this on this idea that human language is inadequate to describe God. Therefore, any attempt reduces his nature. But what is so remarkable about the Trinity, what is so remarkable about the triune God is that they form the perfect stepladder to help finite beings grasp in some way the eternal God. Just think about this. You have the Father, which represents the source of power. You have Jesus, which is seen as the tangible picture of God. And then you have the Holy Spirit that is touching the heart of man and all of creation. And through this divine stepladder, finite beings are able to grasp in some way the eternal God. That is what is so beautiful about this heavenly configuration. The Trinity answers the question of how finite beings can grasp and understand an eternal God. And it's so remarkable when you begin to think about it. Muslims will always say, can you please explain how three equals one? But what they do not understand is this, is that the apostles were not idiots in math. Amen? They were not trying to show three equals one. Rather, they were trying to show how a plurality can become singular or united. We have concepts about what love is. We'll say, I love this or I love that. And people have different kinds of definitions. But the way the Bible describes the most holiest kind of love is something that is called oneness. Oneness. And so you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that are portraying themselves as oneness, united in a special, holy kind of love. One special author actually wrote this, trying to grapple with the idea of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Look what he says right here. Three is the essential numeric value of love. Where there is only one person, love cannot occur. Where there are two, each is the sole recipient of the other's attention, giving place for self-absorption. But the moment there are three, each recipient of anyone's love must also humbly defer attention to the third party. And each one is the third party to the other two. Remarkable. Very remarkable when you begin to think about it. In fact, I'm going to repeat it to you because I know something just went over your head. 
Where there are two, each one is the sole recipient of the other's attention, giving place for self-absorption. You do something for me, I do something for you. But the moment there are three, each recipient of anyone's love must also humbly defer attention to the third party. And each one is the third party to the other two. Pure selflessness can now occur by virtue of the fact that each one must love and be loved with both an exclusive and a divided interest. If God's essential identity is traceable to a solitary selfhood, which would be the case if Jesus in any sense had a point of beginning, and if the Holy Spirit does not eternally exist with the distinct personhood, then love is not essential to God's nature. Said more simply, if Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not eternally coexistent, it cannot be said with any coherence that God is love. Can you say amen to that, if you get that? That is so powerful and articulated so well, ladies and gentlemen, when you begin to understand the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, these three, and how they are united in purpose, and there is no cause or any room for selfishness. Perfectly portraying what selfless love is to this world. And that's awesome. That is so awesome as you begin to really, really ponder that. You know, we are going to be going into a very interesting aspect of God right now. Something that is misunderstood by much of the world and very misunderstood by mainstream Christianity. And that is this concept, God and time. What did I just say? God and time. I remember before I actually became a Bible-believing Christian, I would often think about God and I would think about time and then I would get a big headache trying to wrap my rind around how a being who has existed in eternity past is able to get to this very moment. Oftentimes I feel I would go insane thinking about this. But this is where it gets very interesting. Mainstream Christianity presents this idea of God in time as God is a timeless being who exists outside the spectrum of time, of cause and effect. It actually comes from Greek philosophy, specifically the philosophy of Aristotle who taught this idea of an unmoved mover. He said that God is not actually in time, he exists out of time, and the reason why is because God has needs to have foreknowledge, and the only way for him to have foreknowledge is to step out of time. So God himself is timeless. And that has seeped its way into Christianity. God is timeless. He knows the future, which is absolutely 100% correct, but he is actually outside time itself. But the Bible itself begins to portray God in a completely different picture than mainstream Christianity. And it is this idea that God is not outside of time, but God himself is inside time. That God himself, whether intention or whether that's the dynamics of existence, he himself is inside time. One of the reasons why mainstream Christianity is rejecting this idea of a six-day creation, one of the reasons why they're rejecting this idea of, of this heavenly intercession that is taking place is because they're viewing God as this being who is actually outside of time. In fact, this is one of the reasons why they can justify an eternal burning hellfire. Because God is timeless. 
But when we begin to understand the beautiful biblical picture of God, we begin to see that God himself is in time. And it is so remarkable when you realize this picture. Moses himself was exposed to Egyptian philosophy and Egyptian paganism which had real, no, no real concept about God. They viewed him and he, or whatever he was, how their perception was, gods or God, they viewed him as outside of time. And the only way they could grasp this idea of God being personal was to create idols. So that's what they did. And they created many idols. And then they would attach these idols to nature. And then what was so remarkable is when God actually appears to Moses, and Moses says, what is your name? Do you know what God says? He says, I am that I am. God revealed himself in the present tense, which is so powerful. In fact, the Sadducees were known for having this idea of that God was so far exalted, uh, humanity, above humanity, he really was not interested in humanity. When I was taking, uh, when I was a pre-med student in Southern California, not this part of Southern California, Orange County. I never forgot, as I was searching out this concept of God, I'd go into the science building and I'd always stare at this placard on the wall. And it said something very interesting. It said this, Einstein was speaking. He says, I prefer a kind of God who is not interested in the welfare of humanity, who sets things in motion and then goes on with bigger business. And every day I would go and I would look at this placard and I think to myself, I wonder if that's how God really is. Like he sets things in motion and backs off. And every day I'd go into class, I'd always see this placard and I would just stare at it. I would just stare at it. I would just stare at it. But as I begin to understand this biblical picture of God and God actually being in time, it was so remarkable. The Sadducees had this concept. God was outside. He was too far exalted. And Jesus' life was a complete rebuke to them. He taught this principle of Emmanuel, God with us. And it shook them to their very core and their theological beliefs. How could God be so personal? How, he, how could it be that he himself is actually in time with us? Ladies and gentlemen, if he is not in time with us, then he is not subject to a real-time emotional experience. It is that important. It is the missing piece of the puzzle. Mainstream Christianity is ditching this whole idea. And they're saying God is timeless. To him, time doesn't really matter. Therefore, he can destroy people for all of eternity. He can take billions of years to create a planet, millions of years to create life. To him, time does not matter. But when you begin to see the biblical picture of God in time, you realize that each day of creation was extremely important to him. You begin to realize why God could not destroy people for all of eternity. He could never be happy. And neither could the redeemed. But Jesus' life was this picture that God had actually entered into the time. Now, I'm not saying the time is exactly the same way that God operates time, but it's very analogous. Very analogous. He's in our time zone. Can you say amen to that? And God can experience things that we experience. The Bible says in Isaiah 63, in all our affliction, he himself was affliction. He himself was afflicted. The Bible talks about over and over again different things that God himself was subject to in the present tense. 
We have a God whose name is I am, that I am, a God who's in present tense with us. And this is so powerful when you begin to realize this. A lot of people say, wait a minute, if God is in time, then how does he have foreknowledge of the future? I don't know, you can ask God when you talk to him. That's what makes him God. Can you say amen to that? That somehow there's some kind of tension where he's able to see eternity future. You know, somebody who was trying to push this idea that God is timeless says this, that God exists right now in 1942 and right now in 2014 at the exact same time. The counter argument to that one philosopher said, how in the world then could God have a relationship with his people? How could he be relational? And he began to bring up this idea of consciousness, that consciousness is relational. It is present tense. It is aware of what is happening. And if God is existing outside of time, then he himself does not have this very relational kind of consciousness. Many of you are thinking to yourself, why does this even matter? Why does this even matter knowing that God is in time? It is so important to us because it determines our relationship with him. We can have right now, if we desire, a relationship with God present tense. And regardless of what we've done in the past, we have a God who's willing to forgive us and to wash away the sins and allow that accessibility to that relationship today. And that's why Jesus says, tomorrow is promised to no man, but today is the day of salvation. One time somebody asked me the question, how is it possible? that you can actually have free will, and God has foreknowledge of the events. Isn't foreknowledge foreordination? Those are one of those questions that you always think to yourself, you know, I'm going to go talk to the pastor about this. I don't have another pastor except my administrative pastor. But this is very interesting. Foreknowledge and free will are 100% compatible. Compatible. Not compatible, compatible. God can have foreknowledge without any way violating your free will. You know, theological fatalism exists right now, and that is this idea that's creeping into a lot of Christianity, is this idea that if uh, God knows X, then therefore you must necessarily commit X. And if you were to break it down logically, you would say this, if God, if, uh, God therefore knows X, you commit X. You must necessarily therefore commit X because God has foreknowledge. His foreknowledge is actually foreknation. That is not necessary too. That creates all sorts of fallacies in that kind of logic. God's foreknowledge by no way, no means actually determines your choice. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Your choice determines God's foreknowledge. If you pick Y, then God's foreknowledge would be Y. Think of God like this, that or for God's foreknowledge is not so much like this thermostat that sets things and then forces external conditions to comply with that. What God's foreknowledge is like a divine thermometer, which is actually measuring external conditions. And one of the greatest ways I know that God's foreknowledge is not his foreknation is this, is that God Acts. Now pay attention to what I'm about to say, otherwise you're going to misinterpret me. You're going to say, Pastor Nell said this, blah, 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 blah. It's this. The very fact God acts contrary to outcomes he himself would not choose is to me the greatest evidence you have freedom of choice.
Do you guys hear what I just said? Some of you are like, I didn't get it. I'll say it one more time. The very fact God acts different than known or acts contrary to known outcomes is proof positive fact that he does not foreordain human choices. Think about Judas. Think about Lucifer. These are beings who God was well aware was going to make certain kinds of choices. But that did not in any way diminish what or how he would treat them. And the very fact he offered them love and the very fact he offered them forgiveness over and over again is a very proof positive argument that God himself did not ordain those choices, but he was seeking because of who he is to try to save them. And that is what is so remarkable about love, ladies and gentlemen. In spite of what God knows, he does not treat people based on that. He he treats people based upon who he is. And that is love. And love supplies the greatest amount of freedom at the, at the present tense. I had a friend one day who actually said, wait a minute, does, why does God even deal with Judas's? Why does he even deal with Lucifer's? If he knows that so-and-so is going to be lost, why does he even try? And I said to them, because God deals with every person with the right to be saved rather than the right to be lost. I never forgot somebody one day came to a series that I was doing. He was a young man who was a philosophy student. I don't know why they keep coming to me. But he came. He listened to the message that I presented afterwards. He wanted to challenge me. I'm okay. If you want to tango a little bit, we'll tango. So we talked, and he said, I just want to say something to you. I don't agree with anything you say. And I said, nice to meet you. And he says, I don't believe there's such a thing as truth. So I listened to him, and then I, he said it again. I just want to make this very clear. I don't believe any, any kind of truth whatsoever. And then I said, well, do you believe that statement to be true? <laughs> Scratched his head, and he says, oh, you got a good point there. <laughs> and then he kept bringing up traditional philosophical arguments. I continued walking with him outside, and I just sensed the Holy Spirit telling me, keep up with him. So while he continued talking to me, it began to come out, and he's like, and by the way, he's like, I'm mad at God. And then I said, wait a minute, how can you be mad at somebody you don't even believe in? (laughs) And then he said this to me. He says, you want to know why I'm not a Christian anymore? I said, you tell me. He said this. Now pay attention to what I'm about to say. This is what he said. He said, my dad became a homosexual. He left the church. I know very clearly what the Bible says, and the Bible says people like him are going to go to hell. And he says, therefore, I am rejecting this idea because I don't want my dad to burn in hell. And as he continued, I began to realize this was the root issue. And you know what I said to him? I said, who's condemned him? Now, sin is sin. There's no question about that. But I said to him, you are the one that has already decided his destiny, haven't you? You're the one that has already sentenced him to hell. You're the one believes that there is no hope for him. You are the one that has taken away his choice. And he just stood there shocked. And I knew the Holy Spirit was speaking to him. And he just began to weep and cry. We walked to the car, and then he said something to me I never forgot. It was almost like one of those dramatic movie endings. He said, 
why did you come up to me anyways? And then I said to him, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. Ladies and gentlemen, God is supplying absolute freedom to each and every one of you. Absolutely. God has committed. God gives the acts or the facts of freedom, but he has committed to humanity the acts of freedom. And he leaves us, he leaves it up to us to make the kind of decisions to follow him. And so as Jesus began to really plead with people, he began to share a very remarkable side of God, and that was God was very present tense and involved in people's lives. In spite of what the outcome might have been in the future, God was seeking to save every person. And through his providences and through his teaching, he was trying to connect and trying to redeem people. It's very interesting. You see the apostles begin to really teach this idea of God with us and God in time. Even Paul himself, when he was surrounded by pagans in the book of Acts, and they begin to say, hey, this is Hermes, and Barnabas, you're Zeus because you look a little bit overweight. And they begin to say, they begin to bring out the cows, and they're about to worship them, when all of a sudden Paul says, no, 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 we are humans just like you. And it's very interesting how Paul deals with them. He says, we worship the God who made the heavens, the earth, and the he actually quoted from the Sabbath commandment. You want to know why? Because the Sabbath commandment has to do with God in time. God in time. A God who is very present tense and very relational. And he was trying to teach him that God does not dwell in these things or he's impersonal. He is very present tense and he is very personal. And what you do to him and how you respond to him affects him. It affects God. And it's remarkable when you begin to think about that idea, that concept. Now going back a little bit, when you think about creation, and I appreciate Dr. Brandt's um, sharing with us intelligent design, and you just think about humanity. And we go back 6,000 years. You think about the creation of Adam, but we're going to go back sometime before that and the creation of all these unfallen worlds and go back before that to the creation of all these angels and go back to when the very first angel was created before God created anything. What were God's pre-creation thoughts? What were they? What was God thinking? Prior to the creation of everything, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit eternally existing. And here they are, they come to a point where they're about to start creation. It's very remarkable. The scripture actually gives a lot of clues in about what they were thinking pre-creation. Take a good look at this. Jesus here is talking. And he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the what? World. The word world is the word cosmos. Jesus here is looking back in eternity past, and he's saying, Father, me and you had this very, very special kind of love. It's very interesting when you go to the book of Matthew, when Jesus is actually describing the second coming and what he actually says to the redeemed. Take a good look at this. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, for you from the foundation of the world. Here we see another thought that also existed pre-creation. God was in this unified love. But another thought began to occur simultaneously. And that was this, 
There was going to be the creation of humanity with the idea, with the purpose of bringing humanity into a very special bond and unity with God. But there was a third thought that also occurred, pre-creation. Revelation 13 verse 8 talks about Jesus. He was the lamb slain from the what? Foundation of the world or before the foundation of the world or the cosmos. Right there, you see another understanding that God had. It was not only that God had just had this unified, beautiful love relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now they were wanting to bring in creation into that special kind of love, but they also understood something else, that this would require a cross. Where there is love, there is sacrifice. Not that God foreordained mankind to fall, but he knew there would be rebellion. And he came up with this contingency plan to bring back creation to him. These were God's pre-creation thoughts. These were there at the inception of creation. In other words, redemption was written into the DNA of creation. The very love that motivated creation would unfold its principles, not as an afterthought of the fall, but unfolding its principles unto redemption. And this is so beautiful when you begin to think about this concept. That God, when he was creating or about to create, he was well aware there was going to be rebellion. But in spite of what he foreknew, he would work to give the greatest amount of advantages. He would work to give the greatest kinds of providences and love to all his creatures that no one would have excuse for rebelling. God foreknew this. And so here was, in the inception of the creation plan, was the cross from the very beginning. The cross was written into the creation plan. It was written in part of the, the motivation of what love was, and it was unfolding more and more. This was in God's heart from the very beginning. And it's mind-boggling when you begin to think about this. That God was anticipating there would be a fall. And in spite of what he was anticipating, he knew that he would still offer to his creations a chance to be redeemed so that the original purpose of bringing these creatures into a special kind of relationship would still take place to those who were willing. Every time there was a rebellion, these were opportunities for God's love to come back with greater waves of love greater beauty, greater mercy. When mankind was rebelling, these were opportunities for love to continue to show itself. And I love what the scripture says, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And what is even powerful is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this heavenly configuration designed to help finite beings understand an infinite God, would alter their essence again by creating or by having one of them take the nature of the rebels, which was mankind. Jesus himself carries human nature eternally 
and I was blown away by this powerful quote that was found in the book Desire of Ages. When you begin to actually think about this, this is mind-blowing. In taking our nature, the Savior has bound himself to humanity by a tie that is never to be broken. Through the eternal ages, he is linked with us. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now listen to this. God has adopted human nature in the person of his son and has carried the same into the highest heavens. God has actually fused humanity into the Trinity. He has brought human nature into the Godhead. Think about what that means to the universe. It is the Son of Man who shares the throne of the universe. In Christ, the family of earth and the family of heaven are bound together. Christ glorified is our brother. Can you say amen to that? Heaven is enshrined in humanity, and humanity is enfolded in the bosom of infinite love. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have permanently altered their, hum their community and brought humanity into that. And it is astounding when you begin to think about that and what that actually means. Many of us wonder, how is it that God would still love me? Ladies and gentlemen, look to eternity past and you will see the great commitment and sacrifice that God has made for sinners like us. How could he give up on you? How could he abandon you? With such a great price he was willing to pay and the changes he was willing to make for eternity. How could he do that? One day I was sitting with my uncles and my uncles are ardent Hindus. When I first became a Christian, there wasn't a lot of good communication. And one of my uncles, you know, I was seeing them years later, just a few years ago. One of them wasn't doing so well. He was about to go back to India. He's still alive, praise the Lord. But I wondered if I would see him again. And right before they were about to leave for the airport, I went upstairs and I prayed and I said, God, how do I communicate to them? How do I share who you are to these people? So I went downstairs, talked with them, I listened, and they brought up naturally the conversation of what it's like to be a pastor. So I just answered the questions. And then they asked the question about how is somebody saved? I was like, this is totally God leading in this. And as they continued talking, I started sharing with them, but I still felt like I wasn't connecting with them. And then all of a sudden, the Spirit took over, and I said to them, do you want to know what's so remarkable about the future? There's a special prophecy given, and they listened. 
And I said, the book of Zechariah, chapter 13, describes a moment that's in the future, something that's going to come, something God looks forward to and he is looking forward to. It's a moment where we receive a glimpse of heaven. And in this glimpse of heaven, I was just telling them, and their mouths were just like, they were just staring. And I said, in this glimpse of heaven, apparently some people come before God and they're shocked about something. And they said, well, what are they shocked about? They noticed the scars in his hands. And I said, can you imagine this? And I told them some of our ancestors getting to heaven one day, those who were faithful in the light God had given to them, they get to heaven one day and they notice God and they're surprised because as they're looking at God, they're seeing someone who carries scars. And the Bible says in Zechariah 13, they will ask the question, where did you get the scars in your hands? And the response that comes from God is, I was wounded in the house of my friends. Jesus himself will explain the gospel story to people who did not have all the light. And they will be astounded by this great love that the infinite God of the universe became a man, and not just a man, he suffered the most ugliest kind of death there was to redeem us. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know where you are at with God, but how could you say no to a God that is pouring out waves of love more and more and more to you? There's been an infinite sacrifice given on your behalf, an amazing love that God has given to you. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe God is calling us again to open our hearts again to that amazing love. He has poured out all of heaven to save us. He has changed who he is to redeem us. How could we say no to that gift? If you want to open your heart to that love again, I just want to invite you to please stand with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we're still in awe of the infinite sacrifice, not a temporary one, but an eternal sacrifice that was for our behalf, the most rebellious of all your creatures. Lord, I thank you that there is nobody here too far away from your love and that every heart you may draw to them if they open it up. Father in heaven, I pray that more and more our love for you would be greater. Our response would be stronger. And you would continue to make us more and more like you, the perfect picture of love. This is our prayer, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.